This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is a special edition of Campaign Catch-Up with the Australian Politics and Full Story team. Election day is finally over. It's Sunday, the 22nd of May. Later, Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Political Editor Catherine Murphy join me to discuss the results of the 2022 federal election. But first, here's what you need to know. Labor will form the next government of Australia, either in minority or in its own right. My fellow Australians, it says a lot about our great country that the son of a single mum who was a disability pensioner, who grew up in public housing down the road in Camperdown, can stand before you tonight as Australia's Prime Minister. Australia's Prime Minister-elect, Anthony Albanese, committed a Labor government to the Uluru Statement of the Heart, to introducing a National Integrity Commission and to ending the climate wars. I want to bring Australians together. I want to seek our common purpose and promote unity and optimism, not fear and division. Not even a last-minute scare campaign from the New South Wales Liberal Party about border force intercepting a so-called illegal boat could secure victory for the coalition. Nationally, there was a 3.2% swing to Labor, but the big change in this election was the shift to independent candidates. I've always believed in Australians and their judgment, and I've always been prepared to accept their verdicts. And tonight, they have delivered their verdict, And I congratulate Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party and I wish him and his government all the very best. Scott Morrison said he would hand over the leadership of the Liberal Party at the next party room meeting. Tonight's result was not just a loss for the coalition, but also the moderate wing of the Liberal Party, which was decimated by teal independent candidates. And the Greens look set to win more seats than they've ever had in the lower house, with at least two new seats in Queensland and one more potentially up for grabs. Greens leader Adam Bant said that the party had had tens of thousands of conversations with voters on the ground over the last three years. It's stable and effective and progressive government that would be our priority with action on climate and action on inequality. It's 6pm on the east coast of Australia. This is election 2022. Tonight you'll decide the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. Here's how we followed election night in the Guardian Australian newsroom. Serious political journalist Daniel Hurst, what are you doing? Hi Jane. So it's about 20 minutes into the count and I've decided it's time for the snacks because this is the period of the count where nothing nothing matters like you know the first hour there's nothing to be read into the results i thought i should be hydrated and not hungry for the rest of the evening hello we haven't met yet i'm jane by the way nice to meet you in person so we're in the nerve center of the newsroom on election night data editor nick Evershed. what are you doing at the moment uh mostly at the moment i'm 
getting the feed from the Electoral Commission, which has the actual votes in it, and you can see it just scrolling through second after second here, doing its thing, and I'm making sure all the votes come through, get displayed on our site correctly, and all the results get updated. How does it all work? So people count it manually, the old-fashioned way, at each booth. Um, and I actually did this when I was like a teenager on the Central Coast because they pay. And then they phone those results through or do it electronically. Okay, and 20 minutes in, what results can you report on so far, Nick? Uh, the only votes I've seen come through have been from one booth on Norfolk Island, which came through at a quarter to six. And they put through 75 votes for an independent candidate. What's happening? Nobody knows what is happening, so, which is not unusual for this stage of an election night, but uh, it is unusual in that it's unilateral, like no one has any idea what is, what is happening tonight. Amy Ramikis is one of our political reporters. So everyone's in the same position as us, we're all just waiting to see. Yeah, except they're probably a little bit more nervous than us at this point. <laughs> and probably have less snacks, yes. but yes, but no, everyone is in the same position where we're all just, you know, talking about the what-ifs because not a single one of us has anything concrete. going good how are the teals doing oh the teals well um so the teals are doing exceptionally well actually sarah martin is our chief political correspondent ahead in about five seats so at the moment they are ahead of josh frydenberg and tim wilson in victoria um, and in new south wales um, the strongest performer is allegra spender in the seat of wentworth who is absolutely storming at home against um, dave sharma in that seat but they're also ahead uh, kylie tink uh, is ahead in north sydney uh, and sophie scam is ahead in McKellar. So a huge result for the Teals so far. I mean, obviously, the, the Libs will be hopeful that the postals and pre-polls um, come, come back to them a little bit, um, which may matter in perhaps a seat like Kuyong, where it's a bit closer. But I, I don't think that's enough to save Dave Sharma. He looks in real strife. Wow. And this is part of a broader swing towards the independence across the country that we're seeing tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And I've just had a look at the national um, primary votes for both the major parties and they are both absolutely in the toilet. So the Labor primary vote is down to 30%. The combined Liberal national primary vote is about 35%. Both are down. Um, and the beneficiaries of that are the Greens, United Australia Party, One Nation and then all these independents across the country. So um, it's a really extraordinary result. It's a real like pox on both your houses result. Okay, friends, bit of a different atmosphere to three years ago, but still a lot of shouting. <laughs> um, firstly, as you know, there's still thousands of postal votes to count. Yes. And so while it's mathematically possible that we win in Kuyong, it's definitely difficult. But you're right, this hour, there for you now, the, the, the teals are eating them alive. Is it right that you are losing your base? Um, well, it's, it's a clear problem that we are losing seats that are heartland seats that have defined the Liberal Party for generations. We started because we wanted action on climate change and we felt that it was the most important challenge of our time. 
bloody well is. Our government wasn't listening to us. So we've changed the government. we're looking wild <laughs> absolutely wild yeah Catherine Murphy is the political editor of Guardian Australia it's all over the place um, look as of I don't know what time it is guys what time is it nine o'clock as of nine o'clock I think the most likely scenario is a Labor minority government uh, but there there, there's a slim chance they could push through to get a majority in their own right if things go well for them in WA and if some of these seats that are very, very close at the moment break their way rather than the government's way. We've got, we've got a whiteboard over there where seats keep coming in and coming out. <laughs> Sitting in a chair with a laptop and a whiteboard marker in her mouth trying to work out what's going to happen yeah. to Australia. Lenore and I have had t uh, tissues wiping, <laughs> wiping things out of one column and into another. <laughs> Lenore, tell us about this cutting-edge uh, technology this, we're using. This is my very high-tech Anthony Green-style board with a pen <laughs> and a whiteboard. Lenore Taylor is the editor-in-chief of Guardian Australia. Where I'm trying to work out the seats that Labor is uh, gaining, the seats the Coalition is gaining, and then the seats the Teals or the Greens are gaining from the Libs, and then the seats that the Greens are gaining from Labor, and then trying to calculate that all together, and it adds up to, uh, I think, a Labor minority government where they might be able to govern with, either choose whether they are going to govern with the Teals or the Greens, but wow. Labor could still get a majority, possibly. Possibly. There's a lot of question marks but on this whiteboard. So. Well, there's also a lot of moving parts. It's a bit like Tetris. Yes. But there's no way the coalition can form a government, I don't think. Yep. Now, that's not necessarily that Labor's going to form government. It's not clear that Labor will reach a majority. It's clear the coalition won't reach a majority. And I'm not sure what they can cobble together to try and govern. Now, Nine is projecting a Labor Party victory. All right, that means Anthony Albanese will be Prime Minister. Okay. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jane. <laughs> hey. It's been a long night. It's been a long night. It's been a long six weeks. It's been a long three years. <laughs> so it's now, what time is it? It's a little Five to after. One. Oh, it's, it's almost one o'clock. Yay. Uh, yay. So what we haven't covered yet is the big swing mm. in Western Australia. Yeah. So it's looking like swings uh, towards Labor of about 11% in WA, which is an extraordinary result and obviously off the back of, um, you know, enormous swings to state Labor under Mark McGowan at the last state election. Um, so Labor was sort of hoping initially to win at least Swan and Pierce in WA, but now it looks like they could win as many as four seats, potentially five, um, with Swan, Pierce and Hasluck likely Labor gains and also potentially
slightly tangy and more, although last time I checked it looked like more was coming back slightly for the Liberal Party, but still an extraordinary result for Labor and WA. And that's sort of likely to be the difference for them between minority government and majority government. Yeah, so we'll just have to wait to see what happens in Western Australia to see. Yeah, that's right. And in terms of the minor parties, I think earlier in the evening we were thinking that they were picking up quite a lot more votes than were expected. Yep. What's happened with them? Well, obviously, I mean, interestingly, you know, when you've got the the primary votes of the major parties so low, and I think Labor's primary vote is something like 32%, and for the coalition it's about 35%, so incredibly low numbers for the major parties. And obviously the minor parties have done really well, but it's, it's very um, divided. So we haven't seen, I mean, obviously the Greens have done particularly well, um, but the United Australia Party, which obviously with Clive Palmer spending almost $100 million, you would think that they might be able to boost their vote somewhat compared to last time, but it's looking like their primary vote is only about 5%. Um, One Nation has done a bit better than last time, but still only about 6%. Um, and then really there's this kind of, um, you know, a bunch of other random independent parties that have picked up uh, a, a, a chunk of those primary votes. So, you know, a, anything from the informed medical options party to, um, you know, random independents in various seats. And of course, we've seen the Teal independents do exceptionally well and look like they're on track to win five seats. So at least possibly six. So, yeah, a big night for the independents. Yeah. So an interesting crossbench ahead. An interesting crossbench and a big crossbench. Um, and, you know, Labor at this stage looks like they will have a narrow majority, so 76 seats, but the Greens are likely to increase the representation. And, of course, we're going to have this enormous teal crossbench, which we haven't had before, so that's going to be a really fascinating part of the next parliament. Great. All right, get some sleep. <laughs> Hi, Murph and Lenore. Hello. How are we doing? Great. It's 2am <laughs> and it's fine. <laughs> we continue our fine election tradition. Of 2am podcasts. Of 2am podcasts. <laughs> well, what a night. Set the scene for us. Where do we find ourselves at 2am on Sunday morning? We find ourselves with a reshaped political landscape in Australia. We find ourselves with uh, Labor on track probably to form a majority government or maybe a minority government, but with a very large and progressive crossbench. We find ourselves with a coalition really gutted, losing seats to Labor and to the Teal Independents and to the Greens and really having to rethink who they are and what they're there for. Uh, so we're really facing a pretty fundamental realignment of politics. And the interesting thing is that it's not the normal election where there's a swing from one major party to another major party. Labor's primary vote, I think, ended up around 32%, 31%. I mean, it is, it would have been inconceivable for a party to win government from a primary vote that low. Voters have deserted both major parties to an extent, but the coalition far more, and they voted for political integrity, for climate action, for the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and they've not been swayed by all the spin and the cynicism and the politics as usual. In fact, I think it was a vote against politics as usual. Well, I think that's 
exactly the summary. It's the biggest political realignment in our lifetimes, I think. I mean, yeah. Our, yeah. our reporting lifetimes. Oh, certainly. Well, we weren't alive for the split. Yep. Um, we were probably little kids at the time that the Democrats we were. split from the Liberals. Yep. Late 70s. And kind of lived through the Greens yeah. eating in at, the, at, the, at Labor, but even that isn't as, as consequential as this, I don't think. Yeah, well, I, I think the thing about this election is that it uh, creates a new template for Labor election wins in this country. Uh, there's only, I think Anthony Albanese will be the fourth Labor government to form office since the Second World War. These victories are rare in the past, Labor victories have been grounded in this sort of sense of it being an, an inexorable social democratic moment, uh, Gough Whitlam, Bob Hawke. But this particular victory has been, I suppose, a, a rebuilding of the political centre. We've seen an alignment happen between progressives on the centre-right who have deserted the Liberal Party in quite a profound way and progressives of the centre-left also standing up, as Lenore says, for things that we regard as very important uh, action to forestall the, the sort of effects of runaway heating and to transform the economy and also uh, integrity in terms of a, a federal ICAC. Scott Morrison famously s described a federal anti-corruption body as a fringe issue, uh, meaning that it wouldn't shift votes. Well, I tell you what. It kind of did. It shifted votes uh, all around the country. So it is gratifying, I think, to see Australians rallying for their democracy. And as a political reporter, it's actually uh, interesting and, dare we say, inspiring to see these sort of tectonic plates shift in our democracy. I mean, I think the next three years are going to be extremely difficult, hectic, contested, uh, messy, complex. Obviously, we've got really sort of difficult economic conditions. We've got very difficult geopolitical conditions. And we've got a government that if it governs in majority, it will be by the slimmest margin and perhaps it is a government from minority, but something really profound has happened. Uh, and the profound thing that's happened is that Australian voters have looked at events not only of the last three years, but also of the last 10 years. I don't think that when Tony Abbott confected a hyperpartisan stoush about a non-existent carbon tax, that he could have predicted that 10 years after that, the Australian electoral landscape would have been fundamentally reshaped as a consequence of that event. I guess it was also an election about something that didn't happen as well. So uh, I think the coalition's hope theory was that it would use the sort of various issues that it raised, including some very cynically divisive issues like weaponising trans kids uh, and also the sort of last-minute housing tax and the, all the things they pulled out of the kit bag in the election campaign to sort of find a, a 
populist way into the outer suburban seats. Now, there was a bit of a swing there, but not much. And certainly the minor parties that wanted to harvest those same preferences, harvest that same disaffection, UAP and One Nation, didn't do particularly well either. So I found it quite interesting also that that didn't happen. Let's dive a little bit more into how we found ourselves at this point. I mean, Murph, you've said all along that this would be a mud fight that's won seat by seat. It's not going to be some big vision board election. But all I could think as I saw Greens win more lower house seats and more and more independents unseat moderate liberals was that it just seemed like voters weren't choosing, you know, safe change, which Albanese was offering, or more of the same in uncertain times as Morrison was offering. So what do you both think Australians ended up actually choosing? When the choice was between a moderate liberal who maybe that electorate had personally quite liked, but they thought was ineffective in the issues that on the issues they thought were important, they ditched them, you know, kind of unceremoniously. But in other electorates where the choice was of the more conventional kind, they did opt for the safe change. Uh, so I think it did vary electorate to electorate and it really varied state to state in an enormous way. Like the swing in Western Australia was 10% plus and in Tasmania there was a swing, a really quite a 2 or 3% swing against Labor. So it depended where they were and what the contest was in the seat. I think too there'll be a lot of focus on Labor's low primary vote and reasonably so. But I think uh, one thing the sort of Labor election strategy required or channelled were these different conditions in different parts of the country. You know, we did see uh, a stronger Labor vote, obviously, in the West, as Lenore says, that Mark McGowan, you know, uh, Anthony Albanese launched Labor's campaign in the West, was the first time, I think, that a, a Labor campaign was launched in the West, you know, since the days of John Curtin. Uh, that was a deliberate decision. They decided to launch the campaign there because the West is a parochial state. They wanted to make that gesture. And Mark McGowan really rallied for Anthony Albanese and rallied that vote in the West. So that was always the bedrock of the victory. Uh, then as we sort of move across the country, obviously there's been a shift uh, to Labor in South Australia recently. If we look at Tasmania that Lenore flagged, uh, that that held up quite well for the Liberals. I think, you know, the Labor Party in Tasmania is well on the nose. There's also uh, a significant political disruptor in the northwest of the state in Jackie Lambie. Also, Bridget Archer uh, somehow, <laughs> somehow... Most marginal seat, high on. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure she expected to do that no. necessarily. And she uh, But she did it basically by deciding that she was in the most marginal seat in the country, she was likely not to be re-elected because that's the history of Bass. And she just thought, bugger it, I'm there for a short time. I'm going to I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. And her community rallied for her. So it's sort of like it, it there were all of these slightly different dynamics in different parts of the country. And Queensland, and, of course. Scott Queensland. Morrison launched his campaign in yeah. Queensland and it might have returned, what is it, three Greens, three Greens. lower house seats, after, for goodness sake. After sakes. basically denying Labor government yeah. in 2019. It's sort of, it's quite extraordinary, that reversal. So it's all of these moving parts, I suppose, uh, that the sort of campaigns had to navigate. And... Uh, 
And I think uh, if we sort of boil it down to the essence, I think Scott Morrison is obviously a master campaigner and a master of tactics. But I think uh, Anthony Albanese and Paul Erickson are masters of strategy rather mm. than tactics. I think they, I mean, obviously a lot had to go right. We, we shouldn't, you know, sort mm. of present these two people as, you know, sort of godlike figures who have somehow engineered all these events. A lot of it's bloody luck. But I think they had an idea about how to swim along the rip. So, and I mean, far be it from me to um, ever applaud absence of visionary policy because I think politicians should always have visionary policy. However, in this election campaign, Labor's fairly modest policy offering meant Scott Morrison couldn't do the thing he's best at, which is run a negative campaign against a specific policy. And that meant the focus was squarely on Scott Morrison, who was the biggest negative for the coalition. So tactically, that actually did work for Labor. Outgoing Prime Minister Scott Morrison tonight blamed the turn to the independence on the so-called upheaval of the last two years due to the COVID pandemic. What do you make of that? I don't think the rise of the independence has got much to do with the pandemic at all. I think that's got to do with pent-up fury at a decade of climate inaction at the way the reckoning of Australian women was handled by the coalition and at political malfeasance and absence of accountability. I do think the pandemic had a lot to do with the swing to Labor in Western Australia because, of course, Western Australia had an entirely different experience of the pandemic to any of the rest of us. They kind of sailed through in splendid isolation and I think felt very keenly when that was criticised by the eastern states, as they they call them, particularly when uh, Scott Morrison for a while was backing in Clive Palmer's challenge to that decision. So I do think the pandemic has a lot to do with the politics in Western Australia at the moment. I don't think it's got much to do with the, the teal wave. Mm. Oh, yeah, I think that's total bullshit. Sorry, I'll just I'll just be direct. I think that that is total, utter bullshit. Mm. Look, it is possible that the pandemic, you know, there's certainly the dynamics in the West that Lenore has stepped us through. Um, I think it is possible that the pandemic served to perhaps make people in the community reflect on what's important. And I think Anthony Albanese again had an idea that he could craft an, an empathetic style of leadership that he could bounce off Scott Morrison. Uh, now, you know, he's uh, like Anthony Albanese is not Jacinda Ardern, but there was something about the leadership foil that he was trying to create with the Prime Minister that sort of spoke to, I guess, a, a time of rallying around those values of empathy and kindness and looking out for one another and, and you know, ab about society being about something and politics being the mobilisation of society for good. So it's sort of there in the backdrop. But, no, I mean, the thing is it's sort of amazing what a rallying point Scott Morrison became, I think, his style of politics, this sort of tactical, partisan, performative, shallow, moment-to-moment -moment politics that basically, you know, his prime ministership exemplified. I think some people, not all people, but some people in the community had a visceral reaction to it. 
But, I mean, up until this campaign, it was seen as being a master tactician, which is interesting, right? Like last campaign, he did the exact same thing. Yeah. And it worked. But but it's also just the sort of lost opportunity in the sense of the pandemic because... Oh, God, yeah. Oh, it's God, it, yeah. it's sort of like there was, you know, there was actually a high point in Scott Morrison's yes. prime ministership. Yes, when he did the right thing, when he did the he, right thing, he kept businesses mm. afloat, and he increased job seeker, and he did all the right things, and he could have continued on there doing something about the terrible fissures in Australian society that were exposed by the pandemic, but he didn't. He reverted straight back to how he was before. Yeah, exactly, and and people didn't appreciate it. So it's it's actually sort of fascinating how your strength your, your strength is your weakness and how all of that turns on the head of a dime. And in and in Morrison's concession speech, he said that his government had left Australia better off for three reasons: one, the lowest unemployment rate in fifty years; two, securing Australia's borders; and three, restored investment in the Australian Defence Force. What do you make of that legacy? Well, um, is that your priorities, really? Okay, securing borders, there is, for the most part, bipartisan support for that. But we saw, you know, the amazing reversal of the normal practice of talking about asylum boats arriving on the eve of an election, which I think shows the extent to which that policy elevates political expediency above what it's actually trying to achieve. And we still... If Scott Morrison had won, we would still have all of these people on temporary protection and visas living in limbo in Australia. Defence spending and foreign policy, really the differences between the parties were pretty much confected. I mean, there's not a huge, there's not a, there's differences in detail, but there's not a huge gap between the parties on those things. So, you know, yes, Scott Morrison did do some things right getting Australia through the pandemic. He did some things wrong as well, but he did did do some things right, but it was a bit of a poor record since then. And Albanese set up quite the agenda in his victory speech tonight. He wants to unify the country, he wants to make sure no one's left behind and no one is held back from their aspirations either. What are the challenges what are the challenges ahead for his government, whether in minority or otherwise? Events. <laughs> Everything. Well, well, I mean, he's inherited uh, a very difficult budget situation, a very big budget deficit, and, and a lot of the things that people might expect him to do to make good on that promise require money, like increasing the rate of uh, job seeker, uh, which, you know, is currently below um, the poverty line. I don't. He's not going to be able to do that. And, and maintain the sort of promises he's made about the budget, doing stuff to to fix the NDIS. Everything he says costs money and his budgetary position is difficult and events, uh, geopolitical events, might make it more difficult. So, you know, he's coming to power at a quite tricky time. Mm. Yeah, there's so many difficulties. It's sort of uh, the environment of rising inflation, rising interest rates. Uh, Anthony Albanese is going to have to reverse a cut to the petrol excise in September. Hey, guys, (laughs) petrol's going up. Good luck. Uh, That's going to be pretty bad. Uh, and then it's yeah, sort of how, I guess, you know, Australia's position in the region, in the Pacific, China's rise, all of these things are very, very complex uh, and are not in your control. And and then there's the sort of, you know, domestic partisan dynamics. I guess the sort of downside of not having the moment 
you know, the, the Gough Whitlam moment or the Hawke moment or the Kevin Rudd moment is there's a degree of emotional investment that the Australian community make in in a in a sort of more conventional labor change moment. Like Kevin Rudd was enormously popular, hugely popular, had amazing sort of personal approval ratings that held up sort of right, you know, through the first two years of that government. Um, so the thing about this sort of more, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> alignment of tectonic plates is that Albanese won't come into government with that sort of emotional investment on the part of the, of the Australian people. Or is it that he will come into government with an emotional investment but just not with specific policies that he's costed out to actually make good on the emotion or the expectation that people have invested I, I, in I honestly him? think it's a bit of both. Mm. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it, 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 could work either, it could work either way you know, it, it may help him, but but I suspect it's sort of my instinct says it, it adds a degree of difficulty. Also, then it's um, then you've got to sort of deal with the parliament. Uh, and while we're going to have a progressive Senate and we're going to have a progressive House, whether Labor is in majority or minority, but then it, it sort of depends, I suppose, about how this sort of new coalition of progressivism on the centre left and centre right kind of coalesces, you know, there's potential for conflict there. Well, also it depends how he can govern depends a bit on how the coalition licks its wounds and picks itself up mm, again. Very much so. And, yep. you know, the broad church has got a couple of pews left in it now. So while most rational people looking at what happened to the coalition tonight, last night, it's 2 o'clock, right, yeah, last night, uh, would say they need to kind of move back and reclaim the centre and that's the, you know, that's where they've lost. The people in the party are quite likely to move to the right and take a quite populist right stance on a lot of issues. And that makes it harder for Anthony Albanese to deliver on consensus-style governing and, it you know, it, it, it changes the dynamic in the parliament if that's the way that the coalition goes. Mm. I mean, we started this conversation talking about this election as a complete realignment of Australian politics, the biggest that you've both seen in your reporting careers. I sort of saw it as a real disruption to the two-party political system and also just to the two major parties in Australia. And I wonder how you think this election tells us the politics needs to change. The candidates that have won not all of them, but by and large are authentic candidates who are talking about stuff they really believe in and talking to people in their electorates in things that aren't just sort of sound bites or spin cycles, like those kinds of candidates have been rewarded. You know, one of the seats that Labor lost in New South Wales was when Christina Keneally was parachuted into foul. And now I think Christina Keneally is a brilliant politician, but that was a move to kind of keep her career alive and she wasn't a local in that seat and they didn't like it. So it's it's really been rewarding authentic politicians who are authentic in their electorate and authentic in their beliefs. And if that's the realignment, well, I say huzzah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, look, I understand why we will sort of consider this as a as a rebuff or a rejection of the major parties and obviously there's field evidence that to back that up right obviously they've both got low primary votes 
I, I totally agree with Lenore. I, I think that's not quite right. It's sort of it's a style of politics that's being that that is being rejected in this election. It's not so much that you know sort of people have sat around in a sewing circle and determined that the two party system in Australia is now some sort of dreadful menace. It's not that. It's it's more an assertion of what people think matter in terms of representation. Both, well, all political actors in the system need to bear that in mind, that people are looking for something more local, more connected, more consultative, you know, and are prepared to punish something that doesn't measure up to that standard. This is the, this is the challenge before the parliament that the Australian people have just elected. Uh, if this parliament is smart, and by that I mean all the actors in the parliament are smart, they'll heed the lesson, which is local, connected, collaborative, constructive, uh, you know, focused on the central issues of our time uh, rather than, than sort of, you know, wedging one another, seeking to sort of, uh, you know, puff chests out. Weaponised weaponized stuff that stuff, isn't important. Mark territory. You know, if, if the parliament sort of responds in that way to this signal by the Australian people, this will be a very dumb parliament. So we've just got to hope that this group of people can actually understand the message they've been sent. Thanks so much to both of you for your time. Thanks, let's, Jane. Let's all go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> This is our last episode of Campaign Catch-Up. Thanks so much for listening throughout the election. And don't forget, if you want to hear more of our political coverage, you can find Murph's weekly podcast, Australian Politics, wherever you're listening to this one. This episode was produced by Alison Chan, Karishma Luthria and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Full Story on Monday. Take care. <laughs>